So it was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and I was in my first full-time ministry. The senior minister walked into my office, and he burst out with anger. You see, he turned himself into the victim, shouting at the top of his boisterous lungs that I had hurt him. He stormed out, breaking the push bar of the exterior door as he left. I talked to someone years later who said that door still wasn't fixed. I knew he was upset with me because I had met with the elders, but the elders wanted to hear my side of the story. They had asked me about his behavior. They asked me about his outburst of anger. And I think the elders really wanted to help, but they didn't know how. They were stuck. One of the elders looked at me and he said, he can be like a bull in a china shop. Another one of the elders looked at me straight in the eye and he said, I know he's a bully, but he baptizes a lot of people. All accountability was gone. Now, I knew this wasn't right, but I also didn't know how to respond. This was the official response, the final word. From my perspective, it was basically this. As long as he dunks people, it doesn't matter how much poison he puts into the water. Yeah, that's how I felt. (laughs) Yeah. So we are continuing our series today. All Request Summer, where we are taking on topics that you have requested. And today we are talking about healing from church hurt and religious trauma. I know. (laughs) Yeah. That was one story. That was one brief story from many, many years ago about a time that I was in a severely abusive situation in a church. And I have been healing ever since. Google's definition of healing says the process, the process of making or becoming sound or healthy again. So today, I want to look at what that process might look like through identifying what does trauma look like in the church How do you heal? And how do we, the church, help facilitate that healing? Now, if you have been hurt by people and institutions who represent or claim to represent God, this leveraging of spiritual authority can have highly destructive and lasting effects. And healing, I want you to know, is a process. Healing is a process. And it's not one-sided. It's not merely your job to heal. It is also the job of the church to take ownership of where we may have been wrong and to walk a better path forward. Would you pray with me? God, meet us in our need. Meet us where we need healing. 
and where we need to be the one who helps to heal. Help us today to know your spirit is among us. And it's in Christ we pray. Amen. So what does trauma look like in The Body Keeps the Score by world-renowned trauma expert Bessel van der Kolk? He writes, One does not have to be a combat soldier in a refugee camp in Syria or the Congo to encounter trauma. According to traumainformedcare.org, trauma results from exposure to an incident or series of events that are emotionally disturbing or life-threatening with lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning in mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Emotional hurt and trauma exist on a spectrum. And as the definition I just read shows us, emotional hurt is trauma. And when this is wrapped up in our spiritual worth, coming from people in spiritual authority or perceived as coming from the church as a whole, it can carry devastating effects on someone's well-being. Making matters worse when we, the church, support, perpetuate, or even merely remain ignorant of these effects, we actively push people away from the church, a place that is meant to point people toward a life of abundance in God. Trauma-informed licensed professional counselor K.J. Ramsey says in her book, The Lord is My Courage, your brain's first concern and chief job is to keep you alive, and your autonomic nervous system works like a stealth surveillance system toward that end. It is constantly scanning within you and outside of you for cues about how safe you are. And I really want you to hear this. When our internal surveillance system picks up on more cues of danger than cues of safety, we sink into states of stress. Hold on to that because we're going to come back to that. Cues of danger versus cues of safety. Fight or flight responses can cause people involuntarily to take their trauma related to a church and then simply cut off the church. All that matters now, at this point, it doesn't matter if it was God who hurt them or people that hurt them, because at this point, they are wounded. Sexual abuse and scandals, power dynamics and manipulation, racism and Christian nationalism, gender inequality, and the suffocating effects of purity culture are all examples of ways churches have leveraged power to keep people in line at any cost. And Dr. Allison Cook says, church hurt stems from experiencing someone else abusing their power or just disrespect of your personal boundaries. It takes no account of the casualties, bodies thrown under the bus, or how many pieces of fine china the bull destroys. And I think it can be easy for us to see all the obvious ways religious institutions engage in harmful practices. When we see it, we say, the churches causing religious trauma are over there. Especially when we see those big things. 
But it's important that we take steps towards not becoming a perpetrator because it can happen even in seemingly healthy environments and churches. Now, all of these examples that I mentioned of religious trauma could be a sermon series in and of itself. And in fact, I was talking to Rob this morning. Maybe this is coming down the line a little bit. But these are not the focus of today's message, since today we are talking about the process of healing. So I have compiled a list of resources if you want to dig in deeper to those big topics. Um, we have books about gender inequality, about purity culture, about racism, about Christian nationalism, and general overviews about abuse of power, church hurt, and how it can happen in churches. Fair warning. Only pick up these books if you really want to engage with the topics and learn something about what they are. They may be hard to hear. They may make you mad at times. <laughs> but if you want to engage with the topic, these are good places to start. But religious trauma might not be these obvious things. It may not be the things that make the evening news. As we have been reminded, all it takes is for cues of danger to outpace cues of safety. And suddenly the church has all the ingredients it needs to introduce religious trauma. So if you have experienced religious trauma or you no longer feel safe in religious environments, then how do you heal? Before we go any further, I would highly recommend professional counseling to anyone dealing with religious trauma. Therapists and professional counselors are trained in pinpointing the source of your trauma and pain and then walking you through customized practices to help you process your own uh, healing. But today, I want to give an interview, interview, an overview. <laughs> I want to give an overview trying to distill the resources that I have dug into, including the ones I showed a moment ago, and drawing from my own experiences and ongoing process of healing. I hope there's something we can learn together today. So first and foremost, give yourself permission to feel. If you are dealing with the effects of religious trauma or church hurt, we cannot decide for you if it's a legitimate feeling. We have a word to describe when someone tries to either dismiss what you have experienced or shift the blame to you, and that is gaslighting. They might say, what you feel or experience is wrong, how you remember it is wrong, and in fact, now you are hurting me. That is gaslighting. Additionally, we have an entire generation of Christians now recounting their experience of being taught that they cannot trust their feelings. They have learned to actively suppress their feelings and have been told our feelings will betray us and our bodies are inherently sinful. Pete Schizero writes about this in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He says, listening to our bodies can be an important way to listen to God. When we care for our bodies, we acknowledge the holiness of all of life and honor the fact that God is within us. 
So please give yourself permission to feel and give yourself permission to listen to what your body is trying to tell you. Psalm 23, 1 through 3 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Reflecting on this passage and how God restores or refreshes our souls, K.J. Ramsey writes, we do not have nor are we able to jump from trauma to trust or from fear to faith. Rather, we have a shepherd who finds us in our fear, breathes us back from breathlessness and brings us back home. Faith isn't jumping over feelings and sensations. Faith is being found where we are sinking and choosing to climb with Christ back home. She goes on to talk about how the ancient people didn't differentiate between soul and body. So this passage is also telling us that God restores our soul, body, and our whole being. Dr. Angela N. Parker writes that St. Augustine's eventual disavow of bodily pleasure led to later theological, theological constructions of a hierarchy of spirit over body. Body and soul were meant to work together. So maybe our bodies do have something to tell us. If listening to your body is an important way to listen to God, then listen to those cues and allow yourself to feel, giving you the insight you need to determine when and where and how you need to heal or change directions or run from toxic situations. Listen to your body because all the experts are telling us your body is trying to tell you something. God may be trying to tell you something. God may be preparing you to grow. So give yourself permission to grow. In order to grow, we must let go of the things that have held us back. Jesus said this in John 12, 24, and 25. Listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. A part of healing from religious trauma is allowing the toxic things that you have experienced to fall away. They may have told you, you have to believe this way with no room for nuance or dialogue. But it is good to allow the old to fall away, to allow yourself to feel, grow, and hear from God. When we do this, we move away from teachings that kept us in danger and scarcity, or a lack of the fullness of life intended for us in God. 
and it moves us toward a genuine pursuit of God. So what might a genuine pursuit of God look like? To start at Outlook, we hope and we pray that our teaching, our worship, our small groups, our community, we hope that these are places that foster a balance so that we can move the scales from cues of danger to cues of safety. Now, we are not perfect, but I guarantee we are trying. We are trying to follow the healing and healthy path that God has for us. Like Psalm 23 says, he leads me in right paths. Invite God to reveal in you a better path forward. Through scripture, prayer, and with the help of others who have already begun the process of trailblazing a healthier way of following Jesus. I am still healing from a variety of wounds. But one of the ways that I'm trying to heal is by being a part of what I believe is a better path forward. A path that makes the church a place where people see hope and the very heart of God reflected in us, reflected in this place. Bernice King, daughter of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Jr., She posted this to her social media recently, and I think it applies to us here. The real flex is healing without becoming like those who hurt you. Genuine pursuit of God is healing stronger and wiser than those who hurt you. The real flex is leaving the church better than the way we found it. The real flex is healing in a way in which people no longer see religion as a bad word, but where the words of James 1, 26 and 27 are taken seriously. Anyone who sets himself up as religious by talking a good game is self-deceived. This kind of religion is hot air and only hot air. Real religion, the kind that passes muster before God the Father, is this. Reach out to the homeless and loveless in their plight and guard against corruption from the godless world. The church is in need of a PR overhaul and we must join a better path forward so that we can play our part in the healing process. So then, how do we facilitate healing? And I want to be very intentional about this. Our job as the church, and the process of healing is facilitator. Our job is not to force healing, but our job is to create a space where healing is possible. But this is no doubt complex. Because when it comes to religious trauma, the church is also the one who has done the wounding. And too often we thrust more shame onto people in the midst of their woundedness. If you want to learn more about shame, see Brene Brown, side note. This is why some people won't just come back. 
no matter how many times we tell them that's what they need to do, the hurt and emotions they are experiencing, let alone the physiological responses like panic attacks at the sight of a church building, make it for some not optimal and for others physically impossible to just come back. So I believe the first step in paving a better path forward is to give people space. Earlier I said you are allowed to feel what you feel. Your body is speaking to you. Well, if this is true, then it is our job to let people feel what they need to feel. Give people space to ask the questions they need to ask. In his book, Hearing God, the late mastermind of theology, Dallas Willard, wrote this. Speaking pastorally, one of the greater harms church leaders can do to those under their care is to convince them that God is not going to meet them personally or that he is doing so only if the leaders approve of what is happening. If the gospel does not free the individual up for a unique life of spiritual adventure and living with God daily, we simply have not entered fully into the good news that Jesus brought. Willard wrote this book in 1999, years before deconstruction would become a buzzword in the world of religion and spirituality. But I think this could be written to us today. Many Christian leaders are currently railing against those who are deconstructing without taking time to understand what it is or even acknowledge where they have, may have deconstructed themselves. Deconstruction, at its core, is allowing the things that we have discerned are not from God to fall away. I've done this, and I'm still doing it. Outlook Christian Church has done this. Rob mentioned it just last week about how this church had separate entrances for men and women in the 1800s. And now we embrace the full equality of men and women in leadership. The reformers that brought us the Protestant tradition from which this church was birthed did it. Jesus did it. Too often, we have shouted what we believe to be the truth only to find later that we were wrong. So give other people space. Allow them to ask the questions they need to ask. And if you are ready to give an answer, if you and me are ready to give an answer, then let's please answer with humility. Willard also wrote this in Hearing God. Ask for God's guidance, even or perhaps especially in those things that you think you already understand. That one hits me. <laughs> Romans eleven thirty three 33 and 34 says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Oh, the depths of the mind of God, yet many of us have it figured out. Thank you for chuckling at that. 
<laughs> a huge step in facilitating the healing process is admitting that we might not be right about everything and admitting that when someone else disagrees, that this does not mean we are under attack. So please, for the sake of the church, don't play the victim. A lot of Christians do feel like Christianity is under attack in the United States, but I think it would be best if we put that narrative to bed. PewResearch.org reports that 63% of U.S. adults in the United States report that they are Christian. Now, although this is a downward trend, this does not indicate persecution. Even more striking, 88% of your current 118th Congress report to be Christian. This is the total of the House of Representatives and the United States Senate, Senate whether Republican, Democrat, or Independent. Now, <laughs> we can get into debate at a later time, if you want, about how these self-reporting Christians hold their beliefs possibly different from you. But the point for today is that no one is going to buy that we are the victims. At this point, with 88% of our federal representatives reporting to be Christian in a nation that continues to uphold the rights of religious freedom, people aren't going to believe that Christianity is attack in the United States of America. And if we continue to use that narrative, I don't think it'll do any favors for the church or our reputation. Instead, the thing we can do to facilitate healing and dramatically change our PR is to love radically. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I'm going to read that again because that's huge. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In Luke's account of Jesus answering a similar question, it was followed up with another question by the crowd. But who is my neighbor? The one asking the question was probably trying to get out of loving certain people, putting a qualifier on who my neighbor, our neighbor, on who our neighbor actually is. Jesus' answer to this question was the parable of the Good Samaritan, making a hero out of the least likely character in the story. If you think it would be hard to love someone in any given modern category, by offering the story of the Samaritan, a group severely looked down upon by many of the Jewish people of the day, then our categories of potential unbelovedness are obliterated. But today, I don't think that is our biggest problem. We are numb to the shock of the story. We name hospitals after this character. But in 21st century Western culture, Samaritan is synonymous with good. But our answer when pressed is usually, 
Of course, we know that God calls us to love everyone. I think we usually we can get on board with that. Yeah, God calls us to love everyone. Instead, I think our biggest barrier today is this question. But what is love? I once heard pastor and scholar John MacArthur say that the best thing we can do to love our neighbor is to tell them that they are headed to hell. If we want to improve our PR (laughs) and reduce the amount of religious trauma in the world, that ain't it. (laughs) Fortunately, we have much better ways to look at love and how to define it. In Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, Beyond Vietnam, he said, when I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm speaking of that force, which all the great religions have seen as the great unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. C.S. Lewis says, agape, the love mentioned in the love of neighbor, is the love that originates with and from God. Brene Brown says, love is something that grows between two people when they allow themselves to be fully seen by each other. Rob McCord said love is when people that have been made to feel like they don't matter are made to feel like us that they do. And the Apostle Paul wrote this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. From 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is the great healing force. Love unlocks the door to true abundance in God. It is the essence that originates from God, teaches us how to see one another for who they truly are, and makes us all know that we really do matter. Love takes a long time to swell up into an outburst. Love gives people space. It breathes deep and slow. It is good, benevolent, and kind. Until we have perfected this way of loving, I don't think we can say people have rejected the gospel because maybe they haven't even seen it yet. Our job isn't to scream at people that they need to turn to Jesus. Our job is to be a reflection of Christ and the way he taught us to love in this world. At the end of Paul's great love chapter, he writes this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 and 13. So much religious trauma has happened when our pursuit of someone else's faith takes precedence over all else. 
But our job isn't to love more so that we can have more faith. Love, as Paul tells us, is greater than faith. Faith moves us into a greater capacity to love. We think we are being faithful by shouting to the truth, but the truest thing we can live by is the fact that it is love that will win in the end, love that will heal in the end, and love that will move all of us toward God. And as we wrap up and move toward communion, I want to go back to K.J. Ramsey one more time. She says, life in a broken world leaves us singing a song of scarcity. I have never encountered a pair of eyes that have been met with as much love as they needed. I have never met a person whose nervous system hasn't been shaped by some scarcity of connection. None of us receives all the love we need. And we carry that lack of love as distress in our nervous systems. We experience lack. It's a fact of life. It's how we respond to our lack, ours and others, that leads us into lives where we'll be able to say with authenticity, in Christ, I lack nothing. That is what we celebrate when we come to the table for communion. In Christ, we lack nothing. As people who are in Christ, we move toward and help others move toward healing love. And in healing love, all of us can be made whole. So let's take the bread together, remembering that we are in Christ and that Christ resides in us. And let's take the cup, remembering a new covenant where we hope to rise in and with the love of Christ. God, thank you for meeting us in our need. God, please help us to heal where we need to heal. God, help us and lead us and empower us to be agents of healing as we show a radical love, a love that is patient, a love that is kind, a love that listens, a love that stops and breathes. A love that is slow to swell up in an outburst. A love that invites you to lead us on a better path as we search to bring your kingdom down to the earth among all of us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.